Boy, it sure feels like we were in a science fiction movie the last couple of years, huh? And so I was thinking about my theme for my 2022 presentation, and I started looking at science fiction movies over the last 50, 60 years. And you know what's remarkable about them? Several of them had 2022 pegged as the year that the world was going to end. This movie, Soylent Green, had this quote, New York City, 2022, nothing runs anymore. But the people are the same. The people will do anything to get what they need. And not to ruin it for you, but that particular picture has a tagline, they're eating people. <laughs> Here's another one. In 2022, America reborn, unemployment is at 1%, crime is at an all-time low. Of course, it was the purge and they were killing people. But again, 2022, what's about this year? And here's a third one, also 2022. Year 2022, planet Earth, welcome to the future at its most primitive. This is just a prison with one rule, survival of the fittest. 2022, what is it about this year? Boy, people are pretty pessimistic. Well, fortunately, I am not one of them, though I will keep this science fiction theme going throughout because notwithstanding science fiction, we all made it through this COVID crisis and I have never been more optimistic about the future. And we're gonna talk about that today, notwithstanding some of the doubters. What are we gonna talk about today? We're gonna talk about my six predictions for the economy and for commercial real estate in the years to come. And what are my six predictions? Number one, we're gonna have strong growth. Number two, we're gonna have low interest rates and yes, low inflation. Yes, I said that. <laughs> Number three, office ain't dead, it's evolving. Number four, retail is going to surprise everybody in its comeback story. Number five, industrial and multifamily are on cruise control, but is somebody gonna hit the brakes? And the last one is called Don't Worry, Be Happy. Because there's a lot of people out there that are not happy right now, and I'm not one of those unhappy people, and I'm gonna try to get you to where I'm at as well. So let's begin, talk about strong growth. Why do I believe in strong growth? Well, fancy chart. All this chart says is we had a record year in 2021 for the total amount of sales in commercial real estate, stunning. Unbelievable, record low cap rates, record amount of capital flows in the midst of the apocalypse. Unbelievable. Number two, record values. These are cap rates coming down. How's that possible given the fact that all of us were stuck at home and not sitting here in this room during this presentation? I'll tell you how it's possible. It's because there is a record amount of capital that is chasing commercial real estate today, and I say that every year, but this year it really happened. And it is driving down cap rates in everything, making it harder and harder for our investor colleagues to find opportunities. So the bad news is things have gotten more expensive. The good news is that the macro economy is going to be very good for the next two years, notwithstanding all the fears about inflation that we're going to talk about in a minute. And we think that growth this year in the U.S. is going to be between 4 and 5%, next year around 3%. That's the good news because I'm going to get to the punchline bad news in a minute. So we have all of these macro tailwinds that are going to push us forward. And why? Because we had an excess amount of stimulus, both monetary from the Fed and fiscal from the central government. I'm not saying we shouldn't have done it. 
but we're paying the piper at the moment in the form of higher inflation. But the good news is we're going to have more growth over the next couple of years. People got wealthier during the pandemic. Stock market did good. Single-family house prices were good, and we expect that to continue. But unfortunately, we are now seeing inflation. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Anyone remember the little girl? She turned into a grape. Inflation. Guys, all my movie references are from the early 70s. I forgot how to watch movies after that. Well, what do we think about what's going to happen to inflation? We think inflation is going to be bad in the short term, but go down towards the end of the year. Now, let me explain this super fancy one-line chart. I believe this for goods. I do not believe this for labor. I think that the price of goods will get down to lower levels towards the end of the year. But labor is sticky. Sticky prices downward. So I think we're going to see accelerated inflation on one part, but better inflation on the rest, uh, which will be good for consumers' wallets because they're going to make higher wages and the cost of goods is going to come down again. Now, look, there are some people who disagree with this. There are some people who think that this is going to persist through 2023 and beyond, and it's going to jack up interest rates. I am not that guy. And why is that? Because I don't look at inflation through the short-term lens of what's happening today. I look at it through the macro trends that impact inflation over the long term. So much so that I'm going to say right now, and this will probably get me thrown out of the room, not only do I think inflation is going to be lower for longer, I think inflation is going to be lower forever. And that's not a good thing. And why is that? What is going to drive inflation down when you're seeing all this inflation today? Same factors. Aging demographic. Too much cheap money, until recently too much cheap energy, and believe it or not, innovation itself is deflationary. Kind of counterintuitive. I'll give you an example. I just bought my first electric car about a year ago. Yay me, I'm a fancy guy, right? So I go to the guy when I bought my electric car, I was like, well, when does this thing need to come in for service? And he's like, never. And I'm like, why? He says, well, there's very few moving parts, doesn't need a lot of oil. And I said, well, what about the people who are the mechanics? He said, oh, well, that's their problem. My car was in the shop for the first three months I owned it because it didn't work right. <laughs> but the point is, is that innovation is deflationary uh, when you see things like cars and other things that use less moving parts. Now, fancy chart. Where are we seeing the inflation? Used cars, housing, the two biggest reasons. When I just turned in my fantastic 2018 Jeep Grand Cherokee, which was 30,000 miles over my lease limit, I walked in with my checkbook. And I said, you know, how much do I owe you? I figured I'd have to write them a check for like five, six grand. Not only did I not have to write them a check for five or six grand, the dealer wrote me a check for 2,500 bucks. That's how skewed the used car market is at the moment. But here is the labor market. While I believe those prices of goods are going to come down once we get through the supply chain issues, I am not confident at all about the price of labor. That is the labor shortage in the United States. And folks, it ain't getting any better. It's not getting any better for two reasons. Number one, the birth rate dropped below replacement last year for the first time ever. 
in the United States. Now, I'm not suggesting that the birth rate impacts the labor force immediately because people typically aren't productive until they're like 25, not when they're like one. But the immigration issue, the immigration issue, if unless it's solved, inflation, 101. Now, interesting story about this. So I did a debate about two years ago on stage with a former congressman named Dave Bratt from Richmond, Virginia. And I was talking to Dave about growth, and that's the only way out of this. And I said, we have to have more immigration. We have to have a higher birth rate. He's like, yeah, you know what, Spence, mathematically, you're right, but I disagree with you. Do you know what he said? He said that GDP and growth is the wrong metric. We should be thinking about standard of living, not growth. And what scared me about his comment, this, is, this was a fairly far right guy. The far left is saying the exact same thing. So there are a lot of people who are prepared to say, that's not my problem, standard of living is where we need to go. There was a great study by UBS a couple of years ago, which measured not which country is the happiest, they put together what's known as the misery index. Which country is least miserable, okay? Whatever that means. You know who came in third on that list of being least miserable? Japan. And you know why they are least miserable? They have the long, longest life expectancy, they have great health care, they got beautiful infrastructure. You know where US came in on that list? We came in 38th after Bulgaria. The point is this, things are getting interesting in the US from an economic standpoint if the right and left are not agreeing on growth anymore. But am I worried? That's me in Amsterdam a few weeks ago. So I fly into Amsterdam back in November. I was like, oh, I've never been to Amsterdam. This is a cool city. Time to uh, have a good time. <laughs> I, I land in Amsterdam, and they locked it down that night. And if I had known that, I would have flown to Belgium. But the point was, I am not worried. And by the way, who here remembers the phrase, what me worry? Am I like the only guy in the room? God, it's three guys. Mad Magazine, I mean, is that it? I mean, culture, real culture. This is why I'm not worried. I'm not worried because even if I'm wrong on inflation, inflation will increase the value of our assets, disproportionately hard assets like real estate. Number two, rents. Even though I know there's a lot of occupiers in here that are saying, oh, I won't want my rents lower. Uh, there's some investors, too, who want them higher. The bottom line is this. Inflation, rents, and values go hand in hand. So even if I'm wrong on inflation, for the most part, we're going to be just fine as a commercial real estate industry. And you know where you're going to be particularly good? Industrial. Because even though you're seeing crazy inflation over here, used cars, 36%, you're not seeing it over here which is the stuff that you store in warehouses. So you're not gonna have pricing pressure on your rents there. So for the time being, industrial will remain the land of milk and honey until you see inflation in some of the goods there. So what's the summary here? We're gonna be fine with rising inflation. There will be periods of what I call inversion. And what's a period of inversion? That's when the cost of debt is higher than the cost that you pay for the asset. That happens all the time in multifamily and industrial, so don't worry about that. So the good news is this. I don't believe there's gonna be a lot of inflation. I think interest rates are gonna be in check. 
We do think the 10-year is going to top out around 2.6, 2.7%. We think the shorter end of the curve is going to top out around 1.4, 1.5%. So that's the good news. This is the good news shifting to bad news portion because I am now going to show you my forecast for 2024 and beyond. You guys ready? It's a fancy chart. There's my forecast for 2024 and beyond. Uh, we are going to fall off a cliff, and that cliff is not a recession. I want to be clear about this. But our growth expectations for once the party is over with all of this monetary and fiscal stimulus, we're going to revert back to our pre-COVID growth levels. And our pre-COVID growth levels were around 1.5%. And we're going to have real negative interest rates. And so what do I tell all of my friends that are partying like it's 1999 today? Plan your business for two years from now, because two years from now, it's going to be a lot slower, and you need to plan for that rather than good times. Everybody's a genius in good times. Not everybody's a genius in bad times. So let's talk about the office space. Oy vey. This is the one topic I think I've talked about more than any other topic. And what are people saying about the office space, or what have they been saying? Something like that. This is what people think is going to happen to the office sector. By the way, interesting little factoid about this little uh, movie poster. Take a look at the names of Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. Do you guys want to know why they're kind of like that? Because McQueen and Newman couldn't decide who would be written to the left. So they decided to write McQueen to the left, but they put Newman above them. That was a conscious choice between two guys who did not like each other. But in any event, I'm not here to talk about early 1970s movies for the next three minutes. I'm here to talk about Office and what is actually going to happen. And no, it is not the towering inferno. What you are going to see is some impact. People are going to be in the office less. People are going to go from 4.4 days per week to 3.5 days per week. You're going to see, though, days of peak demand. And what does peak demand mean? It means you need more space. Because let me just guess, because, you know, I'm Nostradamus up here, right? I'm going to guess that peak demand will be on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. <laughs> if you had to guess. If I had to venture a guess. And what are you going to do on those days when you want everybody in the office? Are you going to send them all off to Starbucks? No. They need to be in the office or flex space that's in the building. Because the number one amenity that we're at being asked for, other than outdoor space because of health and cleanliness reasons, is flex space. And we're telling all of our landlords to put 10 to 20% of their building flex. And many of the people in this very room are looking at their leasing needs. And historically, most people were taking 20% plus or minus excess space to what they needed. They are now trying to drop that in half and put that burden on the landlord. So you have to account for peak usage. You then you got to account for de-densification. People don't want to sit on top of each other anymore. And then what do you get? 9% reduction in office demand. Hardly the towering inferno. Now, I was discussing this at our table just a moment ago. You need to analyze this not by the general trends, but you have to analyze it by industry job function, and demographics to determine just how much space is going to be lost. So does anybody here want to guess which industry is the number one downsizer at the moment? It's law firms. And you've got to ask yourself, well, why law firms? Well, I'll tell you why. Because back in the day, 
when I studied at the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations, I studied labor in college, we learned that there was a, in a perfectly efficient market, labor has perfect information and perfect mobility. That was not true in the mid-1980s when I was studying it. But you know when it's true? Today. And because of that, labor is asserting more power. And how long has there been a labor versus management power struggle? Since the beginning of time. And those things shift over time. Sometimes labor has more power, sometimes management has more power. But now because of COVID, labor has more power and is asserting it. And who knows about labor versus management rights more than anybody? Young lawyers. Hence, you're seeing them downsize more. Now, are we doing these people any favors? Well, we may be doing them a favor so they don't quit today, but are we doing them favors over the long term? Because there's been a lot of studies on this that say that, yeah, work from home can work from an efficiency standpoint, but not from a productivity standpoint. You lose the ability to network, to communicate. And there is no business that I'm aware that is more mentor, mentee important than the law business. So are we doing people favors by letting them work at home? Maybe in the short term, over the long term, I'm not so confident. That's a $6 million man thing. Anybody remember that show? The whole tagline of that show is we can rebuild him. And that's what we're going to do to the office. It took $6 million there. It's going to take a lot more here because a client of mine owns the Willis Tower right here in Chicago, and she's putting $500 bucks into that one building. So it ain't going to be the $6 million man that's going to bring you back. It's going to be changing the amenity package in the building and maybe changing its location. And one of the key amenity packages is making your buildings healthier. And I can't believe it took me 12 minutes into today's presentation for me to shamelessly plug the podcast that I host. But on the podcast that I host, The Weekly Take, we had recently Joe Allen, a Harvard professor, who talked about how healthy buildings make people more productive. We followed office workers around the world for an entire year, over 300 workers, and we tested them multiple times at their desk, simultaneously measuring air quality at their desk and cognitive function. Well, it turns out, we see the benefit every time you improve the ventilation rate. There's no threshold, there's no magical cutoff. So it tells us, importantly, that even the good buildings have room to improve. What was beautiful about this study is that the reason why most people in this room that are on the occupier side, which is most of you, are very cost conscious is because cost is measurable. And by the way, when we poll our, our, our occupier clients, cost is, always comes out as the number one consideration. And I've been fighting my entire career to push them to productivity, which is not cost, which is not efficiency, to grow the top line of the company rather than simply save money at the bottom line. But the beauty of this book, which I obviously recommend, is that they were able to measure the productivity gains of employees by making the buildings healthier. That to me is the holy grail of moving from efficiency to productivity. And that is the change you're going to see in the future, both in the structure of the building, but also in its location. First, changes in the building with a lot of CapEx spend, and you're gonna see higher rents in those buildings. But where are these buildings gonna be located? They're not going to be located in the central business district of Pittsburgh. 
They're going to be located in places like the Bakery Square, which is, drum roll please, near Carnegie Mellon University. They're going to be in the west side of Los Angeles, which isn't Bunker Hill, which isn't Century City, which is located near UCLA. They're going to be near the Riverwalk in Tampa, not downtown Tampa, which is located near the new healthcare hospital. They're going to be in the midtown Atlanta, which is near Georgia Tech University. They're going to be located in Aurora, Colorado, near Colorado State. They're going to be located in Helsinki, in areas like this. Who is that guy, by the way? My point is this. The location of what the central business district is, is shifting. It's shifting away from some places like the Loop. I'm not saying the Loop is going to go away. What I am saying is people are going to be looking at other parts of the city that have the same characteristics. Typically, they have a university base. Typically, they have older buildings that they are modifying, the mix of the old and the new. Typically, they have awesome restaurants and an art scene. You see it all over the world. I showed you in the US. I'm showing you in Helsinki. I'm showing you in the La Defense District in Paris. And doggone it, I'm going to show it right here in Chicago at the Fulton Market. You know what the Fulton Market was 10 years ago? It was a meat market. Like meat meat, not like to meet people. <laughs> and it is now, correct me if I'm wrong, my Chicago friends, the hottest market in Chicago. No question about it. Low-slung buildings. Infrastructure isn't nearly as, as good right here. Why? You want a fancy term for it? Anybody want a fancy term? It's called the agglomeration effect. And what that means is the confluence of talent, capital, infrastructure, live, work, play in the same place, you win. That's where the tech company goes. That's where the life sciences companies go. And that's where people want to be co-located. And if you don't believe me, you should listen to my podcast, The Weekly Take, where we had the CEO of Biomed on last week. And what did he say? He said, we don't just have life sciences companies coming to my buildings. We have all kinds of tech companies who just want to be co-located with these smart people. Something to take into consideration. But for you rent-oriented people, the fastest rent growth out there are in these same types of sub-markets. But since we're in Chicago, we might as well get another Chicago luminary to make my point for me. And that Chicago luminary is Sam Zell. And hopefully this works. Well, trust me, Sam Zell liked my point too. My next point here is on operational real estate. And do you guys know what operational real estate is? Operational real estate is outside of the four main food groups of multifamily, office, industrial, retail, into things like life sciences and data centers and cell phone towers. These are the hottest things in town. You want to see what the investors clamoring for operational real estate looks like? Looks like that. Those are investors looking for yield in operational real estate. By the way, that is from World War Z, written by some strange coincidence by Mel Brooks's son. But that is why operational real estate, data centers, life sciences are doing so well today. There's just too much money chasing too small of a space. And this is what it looks like. This is where the money's going to, to cold storage, to life sciences, to data centers. And it can't get enough of it. But here's the problem. 
Why are they going to such a small space? And yes, this was on my podcast too. There's only 200 million square feet of life sciences space total in the United States. How many square feet do you have here in Chicago? 250? Maybe more? The bottom line is this, is that the space is too small. So this is the risk factor. It's not that these spaces aren't great. It's not like the fundamentals are bad. The problem is this, is that money has shifted out of office into this to try to get yield. Shifting into single family rental, maybe the hottest subsector within operational real estate. And some of it will shift into senior housing if you take a look at the delta between the senior housing cap rate and the multifamily cap rate. Now here's the problem with this one. This may be what's known as a value trap because people who go into senior housing have to realize there's a big operational component. Remember that word operational? And that's called labor. And the price of labor is going up and it is scarce. So even though you may get the money back in the form of a higher cap rate, you're gonna pay it all back again in the form of higher labor. What's another problem? Power. Damn it, Jim, I need more power. <laughs> Only three people got that one. And yes, I put nuclear power on the screen. And why did I do that? I did that because data centers, which is one of the hottest forms of operate use more power collectively than all of the United Kingdom. Some people estimate as much as five to 7% of all the power in the world. That's a lot of power. And they're gonna to need to find ways to fuel it. Now nuclear, for those who are in envir environmental circles, you wanna have a spirited debate? Bring up this topic. Because this was a verboten topic until Bill Gates endorsed it about six months ago. And a lot of other smart people started endorsing it with him. Because this isn't what nuclear power looks like in the future. It looks like this. That guy on the right has a nuclear power plant in his hand. Miniaturization. And on the left, no, that is not the thing that Tony Stark stuck in the middle of his chest, though it does look just like it. That is what's known as cold fusion. That is what's known as solving all of the problems in the world, and it sounded like fantasy until they had a breakthrough last week where they were able to actually harness cold fusion for five seconds. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it was a quantum leap forward. It is now possible to have power with zero emissions. Cold fusion emits water. That's where the world is going, and we need to start thinking differently about these things rather than just reflexively not using them because we need the power for data centers. We need the power for, for Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin miners are already going to nuclear power plants to mine their stuff. So in any event, I'm sure I'll get thrown off the stage for this during the Q&A period. But here's the thing. This is why I'm a little concerned about operational real estate because I'm afraid it might boomerang. Because part of the reason it's so popular is that there's all this money that cannot go to the office sector right now because we still haven't solved the puzzle of what happens post-COVID, how many people are gonna come back, notwithstanding my numbers. My prediction is that you're going to see a lot of that money shift back to office. And you're gonna see some of that money shift out of operational real estate. And once we're past this crisis, 
life science won't be quite as popular as it is at the moment. So look out for the boomerang. Industrial and multifamily. Everybody's favorite asset classes. You know what I call them? I call them the land of milk and honey because they are the gift that just keeps on giving. There is nothing negative I could say about industrial and multifamily from a fundamental standpoint, from a capital flow standpoint. In fact, the numbers are so staggering, I'll show you a few of them. These are the numbers for industrial construction and who comes out high and net absorption and under construction? Chicago. Why? Why Chicago? And believe me, it's not just the Italian food. The Italian food is pretty good in this town. Anybody here want to guess why Chicago has grown as spectacularly as it has in industrial and a city like Cincinnati didn't? It's because Chicago bet on trains. Cincinnati bet on riverboats. That was a bad bet. The point is this, is that industrial couldn't be any better, growing by over 20% rents last year. Multifamily, same deal. And who did so well last year? Chicago, again. Who here is a big downer on Chicago? You think, oh, my taxes are going up. High regulation, the pension fund crisis at the state and local level. Listen, folks, my good friend Neil Pendleton introduced me to Fritz Kagey about two years ago. And you may not like that guy, but I do. And I'll tell you why. Even though he may be revaluing properties in this town, he is doing it for the long term. And once he sets the prices, Chicago's going to be better off for it. It shouldn't be random what the value of your buildings are. He's a smart guy who's trying to do the right thing for this town. And yes, I am advising my clients, many of whom who have redlined Chicago, to buy now because this problem will be solved soon. My point is this. Notwithstanding how good industrial and multifamily are, you might have to pay the piper eventually. Things this good can't last. If you remember the 1970s movie, Logan's Run, it was the land of milk and honey, except you had to kill yourself when you turned 30 years old. But that was a catch. All I'm saying is this. When things are so popular as they are today in industrial and multifamily, you have to take a step back and just really determine, is this fundamentally sound or is it for other reasons? And that's why we're going to talk about retail right now. I'm going to say this for the record. My number one investment idea right now, and this changes over time, is open air, non-grocery anchored retail. Why? Well, let's talk about why. First of all, the meteor already hit the earth when it came to retail. They've had a bad 10 years. And the movie that I like to think about was The World According to Garp. If you look carefully at this picture, there was a scene in the movie where Garp, played by Robin Williams, was looking at a house to buy with his wife. And during the house inspection, a plane came and crashed right into the house. And he said the immortal lines, honey, we're buying this house. We'll be safe here. That is precisely where we are in retail today. It has gotten so beaten up. We have put out of business so many second tier malls. We are changing their use that now is the time to stick the toe back into the water. But there's statistical reasons for this. Before I get there, 
You guys are industrial, you want to see something really scary? This is from Twilight Zone, the movie. That's Dan Aykroyd. Just prior to this, after this scene, he turns into a big monster. Spoiler alert for people who wanted to see Twilight Zone, the movie. This is the scariest chart in today's Prezo. For anybody in industrial, you may want to cover your eyes. This is what's happening to internet penetration from e-commerce right now. Have we seen peak penetration of the internet in industrial? Yikes. Because if we did, going back to what I said before about it is the land of milk and honey, but are we going to be approaching end? You know who knows the answer to this? Nobody. Now we have charts in our own, our own shop that says internet penetration is gonna keep on going. It's gonna keep trucking right after this, but nobody really knows. I think that the curve will bend down faster than people think and people get back to normal use because we have so much less retail today, because the line between internet and bricks and mortar retail have merged so much due to returns, buy online, pick up in store and other things, and because the value is so good. Retail is alive. Young Frankenstein, man, I have told you it's only early 1970s movies here, guys. Retail sales are doing great. A lot of them are in bricks and mortar. But the real reason I believe it is you need to follow the money. No, this is not a sci-fi movie. This is from all the president's men. What do I mean by that? I follow the money. That's what I do for a living, folks. I see who's buying what, where, and for how much. And you know where institutions are going right now? Open air, non-grocery anchored retail. And I know this factually because I see the statistics every single day. Now, until the beginning of last year, it was all private buyers. Institutions were scared to death. But yes, on my podcast that I taped yesterday, I had the CEO of Crow Holdings, somebody who saw the world differently and backed up the truck in this asset class. And they're going to do pretty well because institutions are now coming in. If you guys want a quick math lesson, the math lesson is this. If you have two identical assets sitting right next to each other, one of them is $50 million and one, the other is $49 million and change, one's institutional, one's not, which one has the lower cap rate? The one that's institutional. It's irrational, but that's what's happening right now into retail. As the institutions move back in, the values are going to go up. Now, why am I not so high on grocery? Well, grocery has been the golden child of retail for years. The problem is that even though internet penetration may be flattening out, it is not flattening out in grocery. Grocery was the last category where internet penetrated, and now we're seeing a lot more of it. That's number one. And number two, you should know how grocery contracts are structured. Most grocery deals are structured as 20, 30-year deals, so they have not burned off yet. Unlike a lot of these other retailers with shorter-term deals who may have been able to adjust. And then if you see the delta between the cap rates between grocery and everything else, I don't know that the risk-adjusted returns justify that. Now you guys are going to have to indulge me. Do you guys remember back in March through June of 2020, there was no professional sports on television? What do you do when there's no professional sports uh, I'm not saying I found the most healthy habit, but I started watching horse racing for the first time in my life. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And what did I do? 
I lost a lot of money. <laughs> but what I also did, since I am the academic guy, I studied it academically of how do I make money in this thing that's killing me. And so let me, this is yet another reason why I like retail real estate. This is how the odds work in the real world of betting. They work like this. If you are the favorite horse, which is the lower line, towards the post time when the horses actually run, the odds come in substantially. If you are the long shot horse, as you get close to post time, the odds move out substantially. The lower line is operational real estate. The top line is retail. It is irrational. This is what's been happening in horse racing since the beginning of time. And it taught me another reason why I like retail, though regrettably, it didn't teach me how to make money at horse racing. Don't worry, be happy. My last section here of today's discussion. Everybody here happy? I'm happy to be here today. Bobby McFerrin, you remember that song? That's not that old of a reference, folks. It's from the 80s. The whole song with no, no instruments? Man, I am much older than I thought. Why am I telling you not to worry to be happy? I'm not telling you there's no problems in the world. Are we about to see a war in the Ukraine? Maybe. We've seen wars before. But this may very well be a strategic play to boost the price of oil. And by the way, geopolitical events don't impact global growth over any period of time. We're seeing the dispute in Canada right now. A lot of people saying, oh, they're destroying growth. They are not destroying growth. They are delaying it. There is a difference. Yes, cars and manufacturing may be slowed this year because of it, but it's going to be pushed out. It's not going to be destroyed. And China isn't doing so well right now trying to deal with their crisis, particularly in real estate. But I'm not worried about that either because China has a debt to GDP that is about 77.0%. The U.S. is about 120%. Japan is about 260%. China has plenty of dry powder to save its economy. This is what, if you're going to worry about anything, worry about this. A lot of people just believe in the economic cycle. And one of the big debates I'm having with my colleagues right now is, has the cycle reset because of COVID? They believe yes, I believe no. And the reason why I believe no is you take a look at the pricing in multifamily, industrial, operational real estate, single family homes, the stock market. It doesn't look like the cycle reset. And that's why we have our 2024 forecast being kind of as grim as it is. But it's not all that grim because we've been tracking geopolitical events going back 50 years and they have very, very limited impact on the economy. Now, what some people are worried about is the political fighting we're seeing all over the world. Uh, we're seeing here in the United States, we're seeing it in Canada, we're seeing it everywhere. Uh, I am not one of those people who's worried. First of all, we've been through this barbecue before in the late 60s, where I would argue it was actually worse than it is today. But the bottom line is this, you know what makes me optimistic? This is not a pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. It was the facts that we made vaccines in nine months. My grandmother used to tell me stories about my father when she used to send him off to a pond or to a lake during the summers in the 1940s and 50s, and she was scared to death. And you know why? Polio. And then Jonas Salk came around and saved the world. 
with a polio vaccine. It took him 25 years to make that vaccine. It took us nine months. Why does this make me optimistic? Because when the going gets tough, tough get going. And a lot of the tough are right here in the US of A. I'm not gonna say yay America at the moment, but I'm gonna say that this makes me very optimistic that if things get much more challenging, we'll figure a way to make it better. Now, also what makes it somewhat optimistic is that we are hardly the worst in the world when it comes to affordability. One of the big things is the income inequality. And you'll see that the United States, some of our big cities, are way down on the list in terms of affordability versus some of the cities of the world. So we're a lot better off than you think. And yes, I am going to touch on the crime issue. Crime isn't nearly as bad as the headlines and the paper will suggest in Chicago, New York, or any place else. And we need to get over it. Because I think what's going to happen is that when people are back in the office, the void will be filled and a lot of the crime problem will be solved simply by the volume of people. The last thing that makes me optimistic is the infrastructure bill. This is a dam that was built in Galveston, Texas. We're gonna see more and more of this stuff being built today, and we need more and more of this stuff because to build a seawall to protect lower Manhattan is gonna cost $100 billion. Folks, there is a lot of good news out there. And if you're gonna think about any one song, think about the song, The Heat of the Moment by Asia from 1981. Because what that song was about was that in the heat of the moment, you make bad decisions because you're scared. Take that hat off and think more optimistically. So my final thoughts, these are the six trends that I think we're going to see. Strong growth, low inflation and interest rates, the evolution of the office, retail doing well, industrial multifamily will hang in there, but there's a question mark, and don't worry, be happy. But you know what? I've been in the prediction business for a long, long time, and I don't always get it right. And you know who my inspiration is now? The recently departed meatloaf. And now most of you know Meatloaf from the movie Fight Club and maybe some of his songs, but he actually was in the movie, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where I started off today's presentation. So I'm going to finish it with Meatloaf once again and say that I might not be bad right every time, but two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Trust me, I played the song. Thank you very much. <laughs> And now it's time for a few questions. Questions. Yes, sir. As we all agree, it's hard to find people that want to work. From where was Biden going to get these uh, child care workers? What was he? I, the bottom line is this, is that distortions were caused to the labor market by a lot of things. And the distortions were caused by a lot of maybe excess support for people that were staying home, I'm not going to work. So all I would say to you is this, is that once the government support is taken away, you will see more workers come back into the workplace. You will see the labor force participation rate go up again. But you're right, there's a shortage of labor. It's gonna be more expensive. And anything that is healthcare, childcare related is gonna get even more expensive. I mean, if we don't solve that shortage, you know, it's gonna be even more challenging for people that are uh, working families um, to go to work. So I'm not disagreeing with your comment, it's a challenge. 
Spencer, I think you were saying uh, the GDP for China was 70% and the U.S. is 120. I think that was in terms the, of the, the debt to GDP. So debt the, to GDP. the national debt, yes. Correct. Can you explain that and the difference between the two and what's driving that? Sure. So when things get bad, right, it could be war, it could be COVID, it could be anything, the federal government spends a lot of money and they need to borrow most of that money. And when they're borrowing most of that money, their debt to GDP goes up, a lot more debt, and their GDP isn't growing fast enough. And so what happened in the United States, we had the global financial crisis back in 2008, and now we've had the COVID crisis today. So our debt to GDP, which was typically hovering around 70, 80%, has now jumped to 110 to 120%, right? China, by contrast, their debt to GDP is much lower. Theirs is like 60, 70%. So that means if they do not solve the real estate problem they have today, the federal government in China has the ability to buy their way out of the problem. We may not have as much dry powder, but some economists would tell you that our capacity is much higher than you think it is, because if you look at Japan, their debt to GDP is like 250, 260%. And they are the third least miserable country on earth. So the bottom line is that dry powder matters. Uh, but one other point I'll make there is that inflation is actually a good thing because it makes the debt to GDP ratio lower because GDP will go up faster, debt will go down uh, as a percentage of debt, uh, a percentage of GDP. Who's gonna buy that $4 trillion worth of stuff the Fed has uh, amassed on their balance sheet? Notwithstanding the fact that I am optimistic and I am a glass half full guy, the 10-year uh, treasury is the risk-free security of choice for global investors. The 10-year treasury right now is trading at about 1.95%. Folks, I'm not going to age anybody in this room. We're all 29 years old. But did anybody here have a home mortgage in the early 1980s? By show of hands? Anybody? Okay. Does anybody here want to tell the audience what was the cost of your mortgage in the early 1980s? Yes, sir. 19%. Can anybody beat 19%? 18. 18%. 18%. Can anybody beat 18%? 19%. Anybody else? Sold for 19%. 2% 10-year treasury is free. And I mean that literally because it is below the rate of inflation. It's actually a negative interest rate. So even if we see less demand for our securities because China wants to take it to us, There'll be plenty of global buyers. I'm totally with the prior Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, who said, I'm not worried about China or Russia bailing out of our Treasury. There are plenty of global buyers for that. And the cost of capital at 2%, I mean, holy moly, folks. I saw smoke coming out of the ears from this table right over here when you said 19%. Literally smoke, because they had never heard an interest rate that high before, right? The point is that we will have plenty of buyers for our securities. We are the risk-free place notwithstanding all of our problems. The Fed has indicated it could very well raise interest rates four times in the next year. Um, if they do it a quarter point piece, you know, it's one percentage point. But when rates go up, they go up fast. That's what happened in the 80s. Um, what happens to real estate um, and the refinancing that's been going on and the very, very high debt to value ratios that are out there? In 1981, when President Reagan came into office, the then Fed chair, Paul Volcker, walked into the new president's office and said, Mr. President, congratulations, you're the president. You know what I'm gonna do, what I wanna do? 
I want to raise interest rates to 15%, break the back of inflation, and we'll be better off in the long term. But the bad news is, Mr. President, we're going to throw the economy into a recession for the next two years. President Reagan said yes. Volcker did it. And we've had this bull run for the last 40 years, right? So back to your question. I think that interest rates are going to go up in the short end of the curve, okay? We think they're going to go up by four or five times, probably gets to as high as 125, maybe 150 basis points. But we don't see the yield curve inverting, right? The danger sign of recessions, though, because of my comment to Mike a moment ago, I believe that you are going to see the 10-year stay relatively low. So it's going to flatten the yield curve. It's not going to invert the yield curve. Now, if things get really hairy out there from a geopolitical perspective, you might see a short-term inversion if there's some massive geopolitical event. But as was proven last time, because the curve did invert slightly uh, pre-COVID, um, it didn't cause a recession. So I think that the yield curve as an indicator of doom uh, has lost a little bit of its predictive power. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I'm not worried about short-term interest rates going up. One thing I will say is this about our, our industry, and I forgot to mention during my comments, other than my other 20 1970s movie references, is that construction. I get asked all the time about should you build today or build tomorrow. I am firm that people need to build today, and why? And the reason is that even though I believe inflation is going to be lower tomorrow, the cost of capital is going to be 100 to 150 basis points higher. So whatever you win by having cheaper asphalt and steel in a year, you're going to lose from the cost of capital. Well, um, I have more 1970s movies I can talk about. But other than that, I just want to say thank you, Chicago. And it's great to be here in person.